Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, we're at the start of this chapter. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And I've titled our study, It's All About Jesus. This is appropriate, especially so on this Reformation weekend, although my focus isn't the Reformation. This is where God has us, and this is our topic. You'll see where we get this title from as we work our way through these precious verses. But you'll also note that chapter 6 is definitely a continuation of thought from chapter 5, where we began to see the religious leaders forming strong opposition to the gospel of Jesus. The good news, the good message that he brought. His new message didn't align well with their old message. And as we're seeing in, here in Luke's historical record, it was the attitude of their heart that blinded them to the fact the Messiah was standing right before them. It did not matter how great Jesus' miracles were. They were against him. We're going to see this theme all the way through this book. They rejected already that he could forgive sin. They rejected that he claimed to be the son of God and son of man. They resented that he ate with sinners. They resented that he didn't fast and pray like them. And now in chapter 6, they have two major issues with how he handles the Sabbath the day of rest that God commanded Israel to follow in the Mosaic Law. You can read about that later in texts like Deuteronomy 23 and Exodus 20. All five of these scenarios that we've looked at in recent weeks and two more today help us to understand humanity's tendency to think wrong about God and what He commands of us. I dare say these scenarios help us understand the church's tendencies to think wrong about God and all he commands of us. We have the opportunity here to learn and to take heed in this text, to avoid the consequences of wrong thinking and wrong choices, and to experience the blessings of godly thinking and right choices. And so today we have this study that highlights that life is all about Jesus. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1, and I'll comment right as we go here. It says, now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, speaking of Jesus. And his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said... Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The charge here against Jesus and his disciples was working on the Sabbath. Daryl Bach's commentary says this, according to this detailed and specific list, and he's referring to the 39 Sabbath regulations in the Mishnah, 
He goes on to say, according to this list, the disciples were reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food, a quadruple violation. By the way, if you'd like to know more about the Mishnah, the Jewish oral law tradition passed down through the generations, you can do a quick search for Mishnah at uh, gotquestions.org. Gotquestions.org, that's spelled M-I-S-H-N-A-H. It is a fascinating read. But observe here in our text the way that the Pharisees framed their question. Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They are basically asking Jesus, why are you breaking God's law? Why are you sinning? Here's tip number one that we learned from this account. Don't ask God why he's sinning. Don't ask God why he's doing it wrong. Now, you would think that this is common spiritual sense, but spiritual sense is not so common as they say. I can testify to that. Sometimes I look at the way I approached situations or handled them, and I walk away thinking, that was really dumb. We could easily camp out right here and just explore the question, why do Christians do dumb things? Why do husbands do dumb things? Why do wives do dumb things? And churches, and so on. Those may sound like dumb questions, but they're actually wise. And they're also difficult to answer. Especially if we're going to answer them in such a way that it persuades us to stop doing what is so obviously dumb and to start doing what is obviously wise consistently and faithfully so as to reverse the bad habits that have perhaps plagued us for most of our life. Perhaps the greatest obstacle to this kind of spiritual growth is that uh, that biblical truth will always put self to death. And people just don't like that for some reason. I don't like that, but it's exactly what we need. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 27, Jesus said this to his disciples. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Meaning, how can you possibly buy it back once you've lost it? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and, then, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Do you believe that? I don't doubt that you do. I believe it. But the real question is, are we living it? Do you see, sometimes there, there can be a big difference between what we say we believe and what we do. At least at first glance, because the reality is people are actually doing exactly what they believe. For example, we genuinely believe that pleasing the flesh will be worth it and that the consequences won't be so bad, so we do it. 
Would you agree with that? When we sin, we genuinely believe it will be worth it and that the consequences will not be so bad. So we do it. At least momentarily, that is the way we think. At the heart of it, our deepest thoughts and convictions and desires are indeed what drive our behaviors. Luke is going to address this head on when we get to verses 43 to 45 in this chapter. He's going to teach, Jesus is going to teach, that whatever is in our heart is exactly what comes out. What I do is who I am. It's because of this piercing reality that we need to be daily and overwhelmingly persuaded by the word of God as to what is right and what is good, allowing the spirit of God to transform our mind and heart to be more like Christ's. When that happens, our behavior will be more like Christ's. What's in the heart is what comes out in the life. You can take any sin that we are struggling with and you will find corresponding lies that we also believe about self and about the flesh, about God, about others, about life. And in those moments and in those situations, the flesh has been persuaded to rule. How much more we need the Spirit of God to govern our lives It starts and continues with knowing and surrendering to the truth of God and his word because we believe it. You understand this. Now, friends, I say all this because this is why the Pharisees could so audaciously accuse the Son of God of sinning, violating the Sabbath. And we have to note that the the specific restrictions that they were referring to weren't even laws from God. The Lord never told Israel that they could not gather food and and, and eat it on the Sabbath. He had things to say about this, and you could read about them in Deuteronomy 23. But he did not go this far. The Jews added to the law. They set up their rules, going even further than God's law stated And they missed the whole point of the law in the first place. But back to their question here. Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, as we're going to see, Jesus was smarter than their question. We see in the text that Jesus gave the the example of David and his trusted men. As recorded in 1 Samuel 21 and 22 when David was fleeing for his life from Saul. David and his men were famished, and the only food available as they passed by the tabernacle was the 12 loaves of bread that were set out once a week by the Levites in the holy place of the tabernacle, which the priests alone were supposed to eat. And the priest at hand that day, Ahimelech, gave those loaves to David and his trusted men to feed them in their time of emergency. And here in our text today, Jesus points out to the Pharisees that David and his men were not wrong or punished by God for what they did. The priest was not wrong, nor was he punished by God either. Even though David and his men ate the holy bread of the temple. 
instantly, with this historical account, Jesus silenced their question. And did you notice he said, have you not even read? As if to highlight, you should have known this. Are you even reading the scriptures? Have you forgotten the very texts that you claim to be the teachers of? But Jesus took this truth much further when he then said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In that sentence, he established himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. The holy day they appeared to be so worried about. When in reality, so focused on the letter of the law, they missed the spirit of the law. They were so focused on the Sabbath, they missed the sun. So focused on the Sabbath, they missed its Lord. This is a most tragic spiritual mistake. Application question. Can you and I make that same mistake in our Christian living? Here are some examples in this chart that you see on the screen there. Is it possible for us to get so focused on getting our Bible reading done that we miss the Lord in the text? Maybe we're so stressed about getting to church on time that we missed the heart of worship that morning. So worried about our standards before men that we missed our holiness before God. So focused on disciplining our children I should say disciplining. Okay, it does. Disciplining our children that we fail to nurture them. So focused on what we can't do in the flesh that we miss what we can do in the spirit. And this list could go on and on. Perhaps you can think of some similar common mistakes in churches, in our church as well. Perhaps like the Pharisees, we suddenly start making up our own rules and treating them like Scripture. And even in rules not only for ourselves, but that we impose on others or even impose upon God, like the Pharisees were doing right here. So focused on the law of the Sabbath, they missed the Lord of the Sabbath. My church family, we cannot afford to make that mistake. Take this truth home with you. Pause in your heart, in your own quiet time, with your own family to evaluate the various aspects of your life to make sure they are really all about Jesus. Whether it's the Lord's Day or hobbies or purchases or even our service in the church, and so on, I have to ask myself, is this passion of mine, is this decision, is this tradition, is this holiday really all about Jesus in my life? This question is simple but profoundly guiding for true Christians who want to grow in their faith and their love for Christ. It will always be all about Jesus. Jesus gave the truth statement that the Pharisees and all those listening needed to take note of, and so should we, when he said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
You see, Jesus was yet again claiming deity. And they knew what he was claiming. The Sabbath was the Lord's day, and he, the Son of Man, was the Lord, is the Lord. The Sabbath was all about him. He ruled it. This is the message, the lesson he was trying to communicate to them in this moment. Keep this in mind as we continue. Verse 6 now going forward gives us the second Sabbath scenario. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Observe the way that the Pharisees approached this healing on the Sabbath. Verse 7 says, they watched closely so that they might find reason to accuse him. This is a type of look that has ulterior motives. It's searching for evil. There's mischief in this look. Earlier, I gave tip number one for the day. Don't ask God why he's sinning. Here's tip number two. Don't look for ways to prove God wrong. You would think this is common spiritual sense. But as they say, spiritual sense is not always so common. Again, I can testify to this. Sometimes I look at the way I approached situations or handled them, and I walk away realizing that I was doubting God in them from the beginning. God was not in all my thoughts. I was questioning God in a subtle but not so subtle, impatient manner or an arrogant manner, as though I knew better. Is it just me or do we sometimes approach situations with the attitude of, if I don't take matters into my own hands, nothing is going to get done around here? And of course, we'd never say it out loud, but we're even talking about God. Maybe it's a financial decision that is hurriedly made out of fear rather than trust. Or it's made out of just a little bit of greed rather than genuine contentment with all that God has provided. Maybe it's a relationship and we want someone else to change and God's not doing his job in them fast enough, so I'm going to help him move things along. I'm sure none of us have ever done that. but It's the thought of, I know I shouldn't be angry, but it's the only way people will learn and change. Sometimes we get ahead of God. And sometimes, perhaps without even realizing it, we set out to prove him wrong. Or we set out to prove him incapable, just like these Pharisees. They were looking for reasons to accuse Jesus. 
they were predisposed to their wrong attitudes. Now, we could easily camp out right here and just explore the question, why do Christians doubt God? Why do we sometimes act as though we know in advance that God is not going to follow through or come through for us? Why do husbands and wives sometimes view their marriages this way? Why do churches sometimes approach obstacles and setbacks this way? We question whether God will really come through for us. Again, we'd never say it out loud, but we get good at finding fault in God and how he's handling our life, or so we think. Now, of course, we can see that this is very immature and faithless, baseless thinking, but it's actually a real issue for Christians. This is something that many of us struggle with, perhaps without realizing it in its clarity. And it's very difficult to overcome because of the flesh, the self-desires, that instinct to self-exalt, self-preserve, self-rule, and self-worship. It's very difficult to overcome this, especially if we're looking to address our doubts in such a way that it persuades our minds and hearts to stop doubting and start living in faith confidently in God. We're talking about radical faith and obedience. Listen closely. We know we are confidently living by faith in God when our obedience to the word defies the wisdom of our own mind and the desires of our own flesh. Again, we know we're confidently living by faith in God when our obedience to the word defies the wisdom of our own mind and the desires of our own flesh. Again, this is the opposite of doubting God. My church family, that kind of spiritual growth takes a miracle of the Spirit to happen in us. But God is in the business of doing miracles, as we can see, and we're going to continue to see all throughout this Gospel of Luke. But let's analyze further the Pharisees' wrong approach to this healing on the Sabbath issue. They wanted to see if the Son of God would sin on the Sabbath. Again, a dumb idea, but that's what they were after. But Jesus, in his wisdom and divine insight into their heart, knowing what they were thinking reframed the question. He reframed the whole issue from, will I break the Sabbath, to, is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath? And you got to love how how Jesus began this part of the, the, the conversation. He said, I ask you. That's like Jesus saying, so you like questions. I've got one for you. And the way he worded this is so insightful. He essentially asked them, does the Sabbath law require me to help people 
or hurt them? Does the law require me to save a life or destroy a life on the Sabbath? We've noted before that wisdom asks the right questions. Bad questions lead to bad answers. Good questions lead to good answers. For example, if you're a parent, you've probably experienced something like this. You know, a time when your, your, your little child doesn't get what they want. Maybe it's that toy, maybe it's that candy, and they really wanted it. And you said no, and they cried out, why don't you love me? Parents, that's the wrong question. Don't even attempt to answer it. There is no good answer to that question. Sometimes we have to rephrase the question, son, do you know why I love you so much? Jesus was a, was a master at identifying poor questions and inaccurate statements, and he instantly spotted this one. The text says, after looking around at them all, that indicates a pregnant pause where Jesus looked around and waited for someone, anyone, to answer his question. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy one? You can almost hear the deafening silence and feel that piercing look from Jesus as his eyes scanned everyone in that room. I'll bet anything a lot of Pharisees looked down at the floor at that moment. They did not want to make eye contact with Jesus. The text indicates that no one could answer the question, and Mark's record of this incident in Mark chapter 3, which, by the way, you've got to read it. Mark 2, Mark 3, read the parallel account. It gives insights. So does Matthew chapter 12. They record things that Luke doesn't include in his account. It gives us an excellent picture. But even Mark clearly states that they kept silent. They knew they couldn't answer. Because as McDonald notes in his commentary, the Pharisees were in the very act of doing evil and harm on the Sabbath. They were already plotting to kill Jesus. So seeing that there was no one there to convict him, no one there to judge the Son of God with the law of God, he instantly healed the man's hand. I would sure love to see a video replay, replay of that scene when I get to heaven. Stretch out your hand. And as soon as the man reached out and looked down at it, it was already healed. There was nothing left to do. The miracle had happened in full. It's almost as if Jesus were to say, show me your broken hand. What broken hand? I don't see a broken hand. I can't wait to meet Jesus. Not so much because he can heal a broken hand, but because he can heal the broken, sin-filled heart. Oh, to stand before the Father in heaven in that day and hear him say something like, show me your sins. Here are my sins. They're gone. To which he replies, 
That's because you've been healed. That moment when God Almighty declares the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, in us is going to be like no other. Do you look forward to that day? Are you and I living for that day? Think back a few weeks to our study titled, Power Prioritized. What was the greater power on this Sabbath day? The power to heal a withered hand or the power to be the Lord of the Sabbath for all humanity for all time? Indeed, the latter. Let's close with verse 11. Speaking of the Pharisees, it says, but they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. The Gospel of Mark, in his, again, in his parallel record, says in Mark 3, 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. You could say this was a turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus. You know, I, I read this verse here in Luke. <clears throat> It says, it says, they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. I, I read that and I'm just almost speechless. I hardly know what to do with that text when I get to it. Jesus healed a man with a withered right hand. I don't know much about withered hands, but I'm picturing this thing that's all gnarled up and bent out of shape. It's hard to look at. You, you wince when you see it, and you just have to kind of look away. I can only assume that his deformity did not happen overnight. Perhaps he's had it for the majority of life, or perhaps it occurred through some tragic incident. Whatever the case, in one stunning moment, Jesus radically changed this poor man's life. He restored his right hand. Friends, that's got to be life-changing. Imagine the lame being able to walk, the blind being able to see, and this man gets his right hand back. And it all enraged the Pharisees. It made them want to kill Jesus. Can you imagine this? How does a person let alone a whole group of people, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the scribes. How does a person or even a whole group of people get so hard-hearted, so blind, so arrogant that they want to kill someone who is healing the sick like the world has never seen before? I and mean, it just makes no sense. As we read through the gospel of Luke and study our way through, we're going to see that the more miracles he performed to authenticate his gospel message, the more their bitter, violent anger increased. All the way to the point of crucifying him. How does a person get there? Based on this text... And the whole gospel of Luke, I would propose two things. 
perhaps in addition to others, but two things for us to consider today. How does a person get there? Religion and pride. Christian friend, search your heart this day. I search mine with you. Self-righteousness and arrogance are a deceitfully cancerous pair. This is an incredible case study in religious arrogance, isn't it? We must all be warned. But we must also be encouraged because the focus isn't on the Pharisees. It's on the Lord of the Sabbath. And all God's people said, amen. That is the real case study here. That is the real lesson of the day. To the degree that you and I are daily, faithfully opening the word and striving to make every area of our life all about Jesus, the more we find ourselves stepping out of the shoes of the Pharisees and into the shoes of the man with the withered hand, the paralytic, the leper. As we've studied in recent weeks, these men were healed. Those with faith were forgiven of their sins by God's grace. They went on their way glorifying God, and so should we. When others look at our lives, when God looks at our life, may he and they say, it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Search us, O oh God, and know our heart. Try us and know our thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Amen.